it's great to have you here uh, to be our speaker. And uh, Todd's been a member of the church just a, a short few years. Um, and certainly, I'm interested to get to know you better. Um, and, uh, you know, your wife, Angela, has been certainly so active in the church, uh, your son as well, and um, to see him you know, being part of acting up. Uh, specifically with Todd, Todd has a 32-year career in law enforcement, including 22 years as a special agent with the United States Drug Enforcement Agency. <laughs> uh, various experience hand-selected to join the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force and the DEA's Organized Crime Task Force. Earned numerous commendations and awards for his exemplary service as a police officer and as a federal agent. Led close protection teams for Major League Baseball team following the law enforcement career as a degree in criminal justice. Uh, extensive trainings. Uh, Todd was born in, in Brooklyn, New York. So Todd, I look forward to hearing more about your story. Uh, really glad to hear today. Please welcome Mr. Todd. <laughs> I look forward to hearing that too. <laughs> when you look back at your career, you wonder if you what you've done and what successes you've had, failures. And uh, actually, my my wife Angela, you're gonna know her more than you'll ever know me, and you'll know my kids more than you'll ever know me. Uh, they're the ones that that are out front. I mean, she's the one that's always you know finds her way in there and does all the music stuff and acting, and then she's brought the boys up uh, doing the same thing. The oldest boy is in uh, UGA, uh, Charlton, and uh, he's been off and on here. But he's really uh, the bigger actor in, in, in a lot of ways uh, and, uh, and singing and stuff. And of course, he did gymnastics. I'll get into his background as we, as we go a little bit too. But um, again, when you get your boys up there, you want them to follow the mom because she's got all this talent and the, and the acting and the singing and everything she can do. And of course, what does he do? He doesn't want to do it. So then, uh, then you just left with me. So uh, I told him, don't follow my career. I don't want them in law enforcement. It was a good career. It was fun. Um, I uh, get the first slide, oh, I'm ready. and, and Eric said he's going to follow me. And so when the slides get off, we blame Eric. <laughs> so then uh, we'll see how that we'll see how that works. But um, when you pull, get the, there we go. So we start off with that one. When I look at that one, and I, and I read that, that was from the company I just started with. They, they drew up the resume, and they said that this is who they sent out to the client. So I looked at that and said, wow, that's an impressive career. Whatever you read, whatever they wrote on it. You know, it's 32 years. I had five years uh, with the Hampton Police Department in Hampton, Virginia, uh, coming right out of college. And that was from around 1985 to 1990. And then, uh, so I'm a lot older than what I look. Um, I'm feeling it too at the age. I had five years also with uh, Metro National Police Department. We were there from 1993 um, through 97. And then I had 22 years with the Drug Enforcement Administration, which led to different uh, living in different parts of the country uh, through 22 years. Um, my career also includes uh, college, which took me from Brooklyn, New York, uh, to the first college was Carson Newman. Uh, I was playing football, went to Carson Newman in East Tennessee. Uh, from there, made a bad mistake and uh, transferred. And maybe I'll get into those mistakes. Uh, and transferred out to a school out in Missouri, Missouri Southern State College, which is now Missouri Southern State University, uh, to play football there as well. And at that, that school is really where I 
I've moved into the career uh, that I got into as far as law enforcement wanted to do that. That career started from a very young age. I tell a lot of people that uh, really from the age of probably about five, six, seven years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Wherever that came from, I guess it's just from the uh, from my environment where I was and what I wanted to do, but I was drawn always into the field that I got into. So it was something I enjoyed doing. And, and again, it started at a very young age. But how, how did I get here? I don't mean physically here at RUMC. How did I get here as a Christian um, who gave his life to Jesus at a 1970 Billy Graham crusade at Chase Stadium in Queens, New York? I was very young, I was seven years old. Um, you know, and then a lot of the questions that are coming up here recently that you hear a lot of people discuss, how do we share our faith? And how do we tell people that we're, we're followers of Jesus? And where does that come from? And how can I do that? When we look at what we can do, we can get in any conversation with anybody. And um, we can talk about a lot of things, things we don't know about, things we do know about. We listen to what other people say, but then how do we share that we're believers of Jesus and we follow him and why do we do that? So that, that question has been coming up a lot here lately. I guess maybe it's what the economy is doing and what's, what we're seeing in our world coming into defense and everything. So that's coming up and how we share. But we have a responsibility as Christians to be able to go out and share our faith, no matter where it is and what you do. Um, I was brought up, um, as, you, as I get into this, I was brought up in a, in a very different uh, household. We had, we had a very, very big, there was a split household, and I'll get into what I mean by that. But then we also did a lot of stuff with our church uh, growing up, and that's a lot of stuff was the street ministries and things from the very young age that we started in New York City. Uh, moving into um, my story and where it starts, it starts right here with my dad, Bernard Lepkoff. My dad is the one on the right side of the screen. That's his twin brother, Robert. My dad uh, was one of five boys. The twin brothers, he was a twin brother of Robert Lepkopper. Uh, the two oldest brothers died before the age of five. Uh, I just heard stories about them. Uh, then there was, after that, then there was Herman, Robert, and, and Bernard, my dad. Uh, and Robert, Bernard were the twins. The three brothers were, uh, what happened was my grandmother, evidently, during that, during that time, I guess, had nervous breakdowns, whatever, so they put them into, um, uh, I guess, medical facilities, whatever. So my grandfather, which I met one time, uh, I think his name was Donald Buckhocker, he had the three boys. It was Herman, Bob, and, and uh, Bernard. They were living in Brooklyn. That's where they were from. He wasn't going to take responsibility for them. So at a very young age, he turned them over to an orphanage in Brooklyn. And the orphanage was the uh, Jewish orphanage, the Lion of Judah. According to my, my uncle Bob and, and my other uncle Herman, they loved it. They said they could have had a better life living in an orphanage and living with their, with their dad. So um, my dad, though, when, they, when you're in an orphanage, you do some reading and research on this. Um, if, if someone's put into an orphanage like that, if they don't uh, pick up on somebody or attach to somebody, there'll be an attachment uh, dissociation, which would happen. And evidently, that's what happened to my dad. Because my uncle and my other uncle, great guys to be around and everything. My dad was a... Um, Basically, he's a uh, atheistic uh, Jew. So I had that coming up. And when they, uh, when the boys were in the orphanage, they stayed there until the age of 18. When Herman got out, he went into the Army. When his dad and his twin got out, they both went to the Air Force. Uh, the twins were then transferred to Japan where they picked up on Judo. And that was their passion in life. I'll get into the story of the, of the Judo a little bit with them. But they, they started there in a, uh, with their instructor was Nog. Nog was 
one of the highest ranking black belts in Japan. He was like a 10th degree. Eventually he followed the twins back to New York. They opened up schools in Brooklyn, they opened up schools in Manhattan on 34th Street, right next to, uh, it was Macy's. And there was, if you go back in the day, in the early 60s, there was a Nedix on the corner. I remember that because that's where I used to eat. And um, so that's where his, uh, his dojos were. My dad has the most gold medals um, for the uh, Israeli Maccabiah Games, because he was allowed to go to Israel to compete as, as being Jewish. So he has the most gold medals in the heavyweight division of uh, judo. So he, he's had those medals. He's had his career in, uh, in judo. He's had the uh, United States Pan Am Games. He's gone there, he's won first place there. So he's done all these things in competition you know, through, throughout my growing up. Um, going into, um, here's the, these are the Maccabee medals that he, that he has right here that I have. And actually I found those by mistake because my aunt had those. So then uh, she said, that my father passed away in 2014. They found the medals, which we thought were all gone. So I was able to get my hands on these. And then, um, so he, he competed around the world growing up to go uh, various places. We never went with him to do that. He just went around and he competed in his sport. And uh, that, was, that was his passion. It was his love. He taught it. He trained it. The, uh, the problem going into the Olympics in 1972, the ones that were in uh, Munich, um, he was set to go to Munich and do that. But back in the day, the AAU with judo, if you owned uh, a dojo and you were a teacher, an instructor, you were considered a pro. So at that point, they, all these rules said that you couldn't go in there. So they fought him on that. And there's also a, uh, there's a book that's out, the book that's the, that has a picture of those two wonders. There was another guy who's an orphan that wrote the book about the twins. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on there as far as them being Jewish and holding them back. He started in the sport kind of kind of late, got in there and moved up uh, fairly quickly. Um, and then uh, basically he was going through and just basically wiping everybody out. And then they just they basically stopped it when it, when it came to the, uh, his, to the Olympics in 1972. Did you get into uh, judo too? I did, and to the point where I was getting more, I was guessing um, our relationship was a hard relationship. So when you're in there and you're not learning and getting basically beaten up, rather than learning, you, you tend to go different directions and all of that stuff. I did pick up on it, and um, and it, you know, whenever you start doing stuff and you start in, in law enforcement, you start making arrests, those things that you learn always come back to help you out. So, um, yeah, so I mean, yes and no, I did that, but I didn't go as far as that. He, he so that was also a contention of our buddy heads on that, but that's you know, what you gotta do, you, you move on from that. Going into uh, my mother, uh, Grace. Uh, I don't have any young pictures of her, but here's one where she is probably, oh, it's blocked no, sorry. It's right there with the circle. She, um, I think she was 12 in that picture right there. Uh, but I had photos, but she's not on the computer, so I couldn't get her to send me the photos that I needed. Um, she was in, um, she's originally from East Tennessee, Elizabethan, Tennessee. Uh, her maiden name is Charlton, hence my uh, oldest boy's name is Charlton. Uh, but that was from my grandmother, my, my mom's mom. Uh, we let her know that's where the name uh, Charlton comes from. That's her, her, uh, her maiden name. She was born again like in, in East Tennessee. She's one of 10 kids. My grandmother lives shy of 104. My mom is the last one standing. Her, her last two siblings just passed away in October and in February. And so she's, she's the last one. We didn't know she was going to be the last one, but she's the last one. And most of them have lived to upper 90s and, and right close to 100, my grandmother being at 104. 
So um, they have longevity. They were a poor family from East Tennessee. They lived in a in a farmhouse. I think it might be the next slide. <laughs> Is there the next one? Nope, go back. And then um, she, that, there was a farmhouse state that they lived in. It was on a property. They were able to keep up the property and, uh, and they were able to live there. And so, but when you look at the farmhouse, there's very little windows in it. Uh, we, it's, it's still standing because they're using it as a, as a historic site there in East Tennessee. And uh, the floors were all the wooden planks and, and just, you know, the, the basements were all just the dirt. And they had, you know, they just had few crops and few animals they took care of, but people who owned the land let them stay on there. So she was the only one in her family out of all 10, she was the only one that graduated high school. So after graduation of high school, she and two, her two older sisters decided they were going to move to New York. So they moved to New York and um, that would have been in the, the latter part of the 50s and right there early 60s. And then my parents met. So now you have... Um, my mom, who wasn't a Christian at this time, my dad, who was an atheistic Jew, those two meet, and then they decided they're going to have a life together. So they, they get together, and then soon after that, my mom becomes a born-again believer, which now brings a lot of tension into a household when you have an atheistic Jew and you have a believer. And so, and then you have one that's really, I mean, goes over the far end of being a believer back in the 60s, remember, in New York City. Uh, back in the day, just like now, we have a big, it's funny because they talk about drugs and, and how drugs are affecting our economy or, or our culture and everything. It's always been there. If you look back in the 60s in New York City, we had LSD, we had heroin, heroin's still on the market today. They had marijuana, which marijuana now you can get freely. Um, and then they had the other, the other drugs that were going in there. So my mom in the city with our church, and um, our church was in uh, so she was. Uh, heavily involved in the church she got involved with um, teen challenge she also got involved with juice for jesus and that's where the um the going out in the street evangelism our church was big on street evangelism going out to the streets and doing that so if you ever want to learn how to do that go to new york city go to bright beach get on a corner hold your bible start talking and that's <laughs> and that's I mean, that's how you start and so you know you you see all this stuff and you go through and you wonder you know you know are these people crazy or what it was they're doing? And so you, you get this and they, they did a lot of witnessing like that. And so, but again, with my parents, you brought them in. And so we had, we had this division in, in the household. And so with this division going on in the household, they had my sister in 1962, and then, uh, and then they had me in 1963. So um, I was born in, in uh, 1963 in June. Um, again, with my mom being heavily involved in, in the church and, uh, and the Baptist temple, I think is the next slide. Uh, no, this is my dad. There's my dad on that far side. There's him here. I think, is there a next slide with uh, the church? Yeah. Okay, you got the church right there. That church um, was from the early 1800s. It burnt down to the ground, basically. The only thing that was left standing, there was a big uh, window, which would have been right here. And it was a big stained glass window. That was the only thing that was left standing. So they built the structure back around that building. And the building, this Baptist temple was on the National Register of Historic Places. Because in the basement, actually, when you go into the bowels of this building, which is a great building for kids to grow up in, there were tunnels. And the tunnels were used for the slaves. So the, the, slave, the slaves were brought through this church into Brooklyn and down through these tunnels. And so the tunnels are still there. They were boarded up when we were there as kids, but we could go down into where my parents didn't know what we were doing. We could get down into the basement of the church and, and go through all that. And the reason why I bring this up is if you remember back in the 
in uh, the 1970s, we had a big influx, uh, actually 60s, from 50s, 60s and the early 70s of the gangs in New York City. There's a lot of gangs everywhere. And the gangs back in the day were the guys that were wearing the jackets, they had the colors on. Now you don't know who the gangs are because they don't, they don't wear that stuff. They're associated by signs. But Nicky Cruz, which was uh, part of uh, the cross and the switchblade, uh, Nicky Cruz used to come to our steps on our church. And that's when he would plan out his uh, gang activities on our church steps. So all of that was in the area where his gang, the Mau Mau's, used to work. And they do that. When the movie came out, The Cross and the Switchblade, um, it was... Um, I'll get his name right now. You had Nikki Cruz and you had uh, Dave Wilkerson. And so they planned together to do the initial showing at our church. And what Nikki Cruz had done was he went back out into the, into the streets. He brought all these gangs in from the metropolitan New York area into our church. So this happened in 1970. Whenever the film was being released, it brought them into our church. So here you got a seven-year-old kid that's in church with all of these gang members that are in our church. And what they're going to be hearing is, is what Jesus did for this guy, Nikki Cruz. So I don't know if you ever saw the movies Cross on Switchblade, but uh, it changed his life around. He came from a bad uh, background. Uh, there was some Satan worshiping going on with him and his gang and everything. And he, from a young age, he ran this gang. He was like 17 years old when he became the leader of a gang that had adults in it. So it's just telling you the mindset of this guy with what he was doing at that age. So they brought all those people into our church. Everything. That had a big impact on me on what was going on. And I know that we were getting ready also for the Billy Graham crusade that was coming because our church was involved with the Billy Graham um, crusades and, and, and uh, his organization because our pastor was a big logistics person. So he was dealing with that, dealing with <coughs> Shea Stadium. So this crusade comes along and, and we had, uh, after we had the showing of the movie in our church, we had all this stuff going on. And uh, was able to meet Nikki Cruz, and we were kids. You know, it was just it was uh, exciting, exciting for us to see something like that. Interestingly, when I when I was in MYF here in the mid sixties, Dave Wilkerson came and spoke to our youth group who wrote the Cross and right. Switchblade. Yeah. yeah, he came out of he came out of Philadelphia as a green guy coming to New York City because he didn't know what to expect, and he walked in there. And the first the first guy he walks into is Nikki. And all Nikki wanted to do was kill him. So whenever you hear the story <laughs> about them, you know, so um, it was interesting. I, I got the movie. I, when it comes out, I, I try to watch it with the boys. Again, when you watch it, it's that old film style stuff. I mean, it did it. So it was, you know, but it's still, it's a good story. And, and it happened right there where we grew up. So it's it part, it part of my upbringing. So then we go to uh, Shea Stadium. And this was in 1970. He did five, he did five meetings that week. And during one of the meetings, so I knew that there was something missing from me, even at a young age, I was only seven. Um, there was, was a hole in my heart. I didn't know what it was. Can't explain it. Just say there's something missing. And then when he gave his invitation, you know, I didn't need anybody to tell me. I got up and I went down, you know. So I, I went down, went forward, accepted Jesus as my Savior. And that happened in 1970. So from then on, you know, I had, um, you know, being involved in the church, we, um, from there, with it, with our church, we started a blessing ministry in the early 70s. And as a young kid, I got involved with that. And what's interesting is when you talk to, like, I see my boys, I talk to them, and they talk, we talk about church and everything. We were literally at church uh, when the doors opened up on Sunday morning from, we, we would start out at 6.30 in the morning, and we'd get home to 9, 10 o'clock at night, you got school the next day. 
And then on Saturdays, our church met on Friday nights, not Wednesday, Friday nights. And on Saturday mornings, we'd get up, be there bright and early Saturday mornings, we'd sit down, and then they would start planning out how they were going to go out into Brooklyn and Bay Ridge to set up the busing ministry and who we were going to go to and knock on doors. So basically, you're going to projects and you're knocking on doors in the projects. You had kids that their parents, their moms were prostitutes and their dads drug dealers. You're knocking on these doors. You tell them that we're going to bring their kids to church. They were happy with that free babysitting. So we would go out and do this every Saturday. You know, every Saturday morning, so it started early in the morning. We wouldn't get home till two, maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. And then you would get up Sunday morning and you get up, wait for the bus to pick you up and you go out and you run your routes and you pick everybody up, you bring them into church. And so we did this in the middle part um, of the 70s. I was involved with that as far as helping out and doing that stuff up until I got into to high school. At the, before high school, I was going to a uh, school in Lower Brooklyn. My mom pulled me out of public school. She didn't like that I, the education I was getting. I, I didn't care. I was having fun in school. And so she pulled me out, put me in another school. And right around, again, right around eighth grade, I had this big tug on. I wanted to get into sports. There was no sports in this school. There was no sports programs. And she didn't want me playing sports. She couldn't stand the fact that my dad was doing judo. So we had all of this stuff going on in the house. You got this big athlete in the house who's world known around, around the United States and around the world because he was ranked 10th. Uh, in the world as far as uh, his judo. And so we got that going on. So now I want to play football. And uh, I wasn't that big. I was small. And uh, she said, no, it's not going to happen. You're going to go back to school there in the fall. Well, school starts up in New York in September, but they started registration in August. So I, I found the school in my neighborhood, which was Midwood High School. And I walked down there and got myself signed in and get, set up my own schedule, set everything up. Didn't know what I was doing, so I was in school from seven in the morning to five at night, and because uh, the school ran late that and back in those days, and so I came out, and then she was getting ready to sign me up for the other school in Brooklyn. I told them I already admitted, and I had to have proof of where I lived, so I was asking for bills. I don't know what I was doing, and so I had to give me help show them a bill and everything. So she was furious about that. So signed myself into high school. I got myself into Midwood, and when uh, when we got into to Midwood. What was good about that school, it was in my neighborhood, but it was a diverse school. We had every ethnic background you could think of in that school. It wasn't an all-white school. It wasn't an all-Italian school. We had everybody in that school. And so I got onto the football team, and as a freshman, um, I was learning you know, learning the game again. Freshman in, in uh, freshman ball, junior uh, varsity, was played on Sundays, which then caused some more tension in the house because now uh, you go to church on Sundays, you're going to play football on Sundays. And so I said, but I'm playing football because I'm on the team. And it's when they play, it's JV, Saturday games for, for varsity. And so she she wouldn't have it. Uh, missed a few games because of that. But then a book came out, and I'm trying to remember the author. The guy was from, the guy who wrote the book was from Tennessee, which was interesting. He wrote a book on, on uh, some of the professional football players that's talking about fellowship of Christian athletes. So I read this book. I said, well, professional athletes play on Sunday. She was about to dip and get paid for it. I said, well, let's do this. Let me, write, let me write a letter to this author and we'll, we'll, we'll pose a question to him. Should I play football on Sunday or should I go to church? I said, we'll go with his decision. And she said, okay, we'll do that. She, she lost because what happened was, um, hit the next slide. Uh, yeah. So what happened was, is I write him the letter. I told him what my predicament was. And of course, I went to the elders of the church and they said, absolutely not, you're not playing football on Sunday. And, and, I, and so... This author wrote back, and I, I, sh I, I should have kept the letter. I'm sure it's somewhere. 
he wrote back and he said, you know, you're, you're a Christian. You believe what you believe. You're not going to lose your faith because you're playing football or something. <clears throat> he said, but, you know, you have to be committed to your faith. And if you go to church, if you have stuff in the evenings, the games are in the morning, you go to church in the evenings, you know. And then, of course, after the season, you do all that stuff. He said, but remember, you're also a witness to the guys that you're playing with on Sunday, and you're there. And so, you know, so here my, here's my letter. And so uh, I got to play on Sundays. And uh, so she didn't like that. And so, but, you know, I give her credit. She, uh, she allowed me to, to continue to, to play. But what was, what was difficult about playing you know, was, yeah, I was different because the guys that I played with didn't go to church. And uh, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't, they didn't have that. It wasn't in their homes or anything. Meanwhile, my home was kind of split, but we did have, you know, we did have um, our beliefs and what we were doing going to church. And, uh, but then they would always, I was always being teased about going to church and why was I different? Why wouldn't I go out and drink? Why wouldn't I go out and party? Why would you do these things? And I just told them, that's not what I believe in. It's not what I want. I said, I'm a Christian. And this is what the Bible teaches that I don't do that. So, but then you, but then the relationship with these guys on the, on the team, we had, uh, as we got older, we had a real good, strong relationship. Uh, this is my sophomore year. And I threw the ball. That guy did hit me. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then this right here, uh, that's Tony Colorado. And this is Dwayne Rogers. Tony played for Denver, Colorado, went to two Super Bowls. And then uh, Dwayne went to the Detroit Lions and played a couple of years with them. And so the guy that's in the picture here, you see his arm coming through. We were actually neighbors. He went to Erasmus and I went to Midwood. We ended up meeting years later when I was in DEA because he was with DEA as well. So I had that picture of him and yeah, he hit me after I threw the ball. And then you can see the balls here. And then once I let it go, but then he hit me. So uh, <laughs> but we, that, that, uh, our junior, my junior, and that's my senior year, my junior, my senior year, we won everything in the city. We had a great coach, we had a great team. All these guys came together, and I'm talking about these guys. Dwayne came from the projects, and a lot of guys. I mean, the real projects. These aren't the projects where you go and they, they, these guys. These guys lived on the street. Uh, the coach had to make sure that they were home at night, and, uh, make sure they weren't out running around getting in trouble. We had a couple guys getting arrested for breaking into places, um, but then you know the coach was a great guy. He took care of everything, made sure that the guys were on the field playing. Uh, we had, a, like I said, it was a diverse group of guys, and uh, we, everybody put it together. We won it '79 and, and '80. Never won since, since uh, since we uh, since we graduated. It's good because I'm happy I got the last championship. So, um, but then from there, um, I left there and uh, graduation, and I knew that I wanted to get into law enforcement later on down, but I wanted to play football. I still had that desire to play. I won a scholarship. Uh, I went to Carson Newman. Uh, college was my first school. I started out there. I was going as a quarterback. Uh, being young and dumb, didn't realize that, you know, six foot five, and you can throw the ball the whole field, but you can't run that fast. And then when you go to an option team, it doesn't work out that well. So um, I, I'd gone to Carson Newman. Uh, they were just turned over to Coach Sparks, uh, and then he's one of the most winningest coaches in NCAA. Uh, before he passed away, but um, he was there, and uh, I started in 1980, I think, and then 81 uh, is when I, when I showed up at Carson Newman. Uh, he gave me the opportunity to, to, you know, to do what I want to do, but then going in the middle of the season, I wanted to change my position, and being young, not thinking, I didn't want to do that, so I made some phone calls, had some friends that were out in Missouri, and he said, yeah, come out here, we have a throwing offense, you can, you can come out here, so I left Carson Newman, which I would have had three rings had I stayed. <laughs> and then uh, so I missed my rings there 
And so moved out to Missouri Southern. I didn't know anybody out there, didn't have any money. So I hopped on a bus, took a 30 hour bus ride, got off the bus, went to the bus station, had somebody come pick me up. I signed into school, went through spring ball, uh, got a scholarship, uh, beat out their quarterback. And then uh, coming back in for the fall, uh, the coach had his mindset on who he wanted to play. And then it was sort of my heads. You know, from the East Coast and he was from out there in Missouri. And it, it's just a bad mix. And so I uh, played on the team. I finally eventually moved over to tight end. And then finally, I was into criminal justice uh, as far as my degree. And I, I threw myself into, into that. And I said, you know what? This is where I need to be. This is what I always wanted to do. And it's, football is not going anywhere. It's not important. It became a part that you have to let that go. It's not fun anymore. So I let that go. And I just got into my studies. And, uh, and I hit the books with uh, my criminal justice degree. So I came out with a criminal justice degree, a law enforcement degree, and a sociology degree. So by the time I got done taking all these courses, I had all these degrees. So, um, so I was good to go coming out of, uh, out of school. You know, with that, it was, uh, the school actually has a good criminal justice department. It's, I guess it's one of the well-known ones now uh, in the United States. So they, a lot of people were showing up there to go to the school for that. So it did help me out and it also helped me to transfer from, from leaving school. And then my first job was going into Hampton Police Department. This was right when I got uh, my own car and I was let loose from my training. And this is the guys that we worked with. Now, midnights, when you got in this department, um, as a young guy, you, you really didn't get much of a choice. And they, they didn't rotate shifts. A lot of departments will rotate every several weeks or several months, whatever it was. If you got on a shift here, you were, you were there. That was it. So they got me on midnights. I was on midnights for five years. And so um, you know, I was 22 going out and I was learning the job. I was getting involved in everything. I just wanted to learn how to be a cop. I, I knew what I wanted to do. It was fun. And I made a lot of arrests. My first arrest was you had to do a walking beat down in Phoebus. If you read the history of Phoebus in Hampton, supposedly back in the day um, with Al Capone and all those guys, they said it was, it was the most dangerous place in the United States to be was Phoebus. But when I was there, there was no way there. It, you know, so there was just a couple of stores there and everything, but you had to walk the footbeat down there every, every night. So we were walking the footbeat. Now I hear something going on down the street. I'm hearing a car rev up and I'm hearing a bunch of scraping and banging going on. So I just, I start walking over that way. Well, what happens is, is this guy's up in the, in the parking lot of a bank that was there and he drove over the, the embankment, came down, hit the street and he starts driving off. So I start running after him. So he's driving and I'm running next to the car telling him to pull over. So the guy pulls over. So, so, when, so he pulls over. And so I get him, get the car stopped and everything. I, I get him, take him out of the car and uh, oh, he's drunk. So then uh, that was my first arrest, made it on foot, chased the car down. And, uh, <laughs> so that was my first arrest of my crew by myself. So I took I took that and, and, uh, and ran with it. So, um, so, so you were fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at that point I was. So, because I came out of school, I came out of uh, college uh, around maybe 6'3", I might've been 195, maybe 200. And then four years after college, I got to 6'5", 285. So that was a, was a, yeah, it was a long, yeah, so everything came late for me. So, um, so I did, you know, so, but being in Hampton, I always wanted to be, again, I wanted to pursue my career. I wanted to be a federal agent. That was my goal. I, it was a goal from a young age. I always wanted to do that. And so midway through uh, Hampton, I applied for federal agencies, uh, made it all the way through uh, the interviewing process uh, with DEA back, back through Hampton. And um, I 
that point, the one guy told me, he says, you know what, looks, looks good. You're probably going to get hired on this next class because I wanted to leave Hampton and get out because things were changing. There were no promotional opportunities at that point. Uh, I was stuck on midnights, and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm only at that point. I was uh, 20, about 26, 27. I said, I need to, I need to start you know, thinking about how I'm going to get into the federal government. So, of course, I, I left. I moved back to New York, still in the process of getting on DEA, which would have been around 1980. Um, 788 around the time, but then of course then they have a hiring freeze. So the hiring freeze hits, and I'm back in New York by 1990 um, and involved in a hiring freeze. So then when I'm there, I'm, I'm back in my church, which of course there's nobody in my church because everybody I grew up with, they're all gone. They've left the city. There's only a few people in that huge building. There's only a few people going to church there. I mean, the building was basically it was just empty. So um, I went to Calvary Baptist up in Manhattan off of uh, 57th Street. And while I was there, I was going in and out of, out of the church and um, I was working out at the time and I always had, well, it was funny, I always tell the story that I had, uh, there was a lot of diversity in, in the church. People come walking in off the street just to come in here to service, but I had more gay guys talking to me than I could do with, with straight, with straight women just trying to talk to them because they always come to me and want to touch my chest or touch your arms. And it's kind of weird. So, <laughs> so I'm in the church and, and, uh, we start going to Sunday school, and there's a, there's a class down there, and uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of single ladies that were in the class at that time. I was going on, I was 28, 29, and I had to remember them by their issues. I mean, <laughs> they would tell you what their issues were. So I remember, okay, this one has. A, so I had a whole list of what their issues were. So I knew, okay, I'll be friends with you, but we're not going out. So then, um, so then what happens is is in the choir, the choir in that church, um, they sat. I think behind, they were behind us. Um, and so I guess Angela saw me. So Angela started stalking me, but I, I didn't know what was going on. And so, uh, so she she's stalking me throughout the church. We're in the class together. She said that we passed and I spoke to her one time. I don't remember that. Happening. And so I remember we got, I got to January and uh, it was December uh, 31st, going to January 1st. And, uh, and the pastor rose at the time. Uh, he opened up the front. He's never done that. He opened up the front to, if you wanted to come pray for the new year going in, and it was going into 1990 or 91. And so I'd gone down front and I, and I prayed. I said, oh, Lord, I've been here for several months now. I'm not meeting anybody. And I said, I've got to find another church. I said, I need to, I want to start dating. And I said, you know, I'd ask that you would um, you know, lead somebody to me or me to somebody that can do that. So I get done. I go back and I sit down. The choir gets done. The organist finishes his thing at the end. And I'm just standing around, just talking a couple of people, and then I got a tap on my shoulder. So I turn around, and then Angela says, um, she says, hey, so you want to take me to lunch or what? So there's probably the quickest answer to prayer that I've ever had as far as meeting somebody. So, you know, her stalking paid off, the prayer paid off, and then going, going through my whole course of my life, it's, it's always been prayer. And being in positions where things worked out, things didn't work out, you can see throughout my career where God's intervened, he's protected me. And then uh, again, he'll let you make your own choices. And, and then you gotta, you know, then you're on your own whenever you step out of his will and then things will happen. So I've seen that throughout the part of my career. So then we, you know, we, we, we date and then, um, oh, I have to come back to this one. Yeah, so then we date. And, and then, so uh, after dating for a while, we, I proposed. And is there another slide? Go on, uh, one more. All right, I'll go back. Can you go back? All right, there was another slide here 
where she was singing. She put it in there. She was singing. And what's great about having a girl that was that was opera singer was that it opens up a lot of opportunity of where you can do your proposing. You know, because it's it, the stage is set basically, and I don't have to do any, any work. <laughs> so, uh, so they were singing at the Caramore uh, Museum that had an opera. Um, I think it was Adelanta or whatever she was doing. And so I talked to the conductor, and uh, you're not allowed to film in those in those um, settings. And uh, so it was a you know, big stage production. They had uh, that that audience there. So I told him, I said, listen, I said, you know, her parents never get to see. Um, any production or anything like that. And I said, I can film this. And I said, I can give you a copy. And he goes, oh, that would be great. So he thinks I'm going to him. And so um, I set everything up and I'm filming. And knowing that at the end of it, I'm going to go up on stage. I had one guy helping me out. I'm going to go up on stage. I'm going to propose in front of all of these people because it's the end of an opera. And so um, uh, that's a chance you got to take. She says, no. You know, so I had um, so I had someone standing back there in the back with me. They didn't know what was going on filming. And I told I handed them a camera and I said, listen, I said, just do me a favor. Don't step in front of this camera. I said, but whatever happens up there, just keep taking pictures and let this roll. I said, don't worry about what I just They go, okay, no problem. So I go, it ends and I come up on there. The guy hands me flowers. I go up on the stage. They're all done. They do their bows. And I get down on one knee and then I propose and she says yes. And the person back there taking the pictures, they got all that on the pictures. But then when she's taking the pictures, she stepped in front of my camera that was filming it. So you only see me go down and you miss everything else on the film. But then I got the, the snapshot. So then at the end, um, the people there, there were a lot of older ladies came and said, was that part of the opera? Or was that? <laughs> so, uh, so I said, no, 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 the opera was opera. I said, but the end part was me. That was real. So they were all happy about that. So then we, we were engaged and then we were married, married at Calvary um, Baptist in Manhattan. Her dad came up and did the ceremony for us. And then we were able to use, it was a great day. We were able to use a horse and buggy to go into Central Park. And then I don't think she put the fountain in there. So we had the big fountain that you see on, on TV and in the movies. We had all our pictures around there. And so we were able to use, you know, not pay for it, but use this, the whole setting of Central Park to, uh, to you know, get, our married, our, get married and then have our photos taken. So we, uh, we do that. Right after we get married, we, we pack up a truck. And look like the Beverly Hillbillies. We put boards up on the back of the truck, and we stacked all her stuff up. Because I had a few things. She had this, she had an apartment, so we had all her stuff up on there. And we moved to Nashville. I was hired by uh, Nashville Police Department in uh, 1993, and uh, we started right out because I had to go back into law enforcement. I wanted to go back into that and continue to pursue the government, which was still you know my desire to be involved in the government. So go, we uh, hired by Nashville. You know, Nashville Police Department. And while I'm in Nashville, go one, all right, we're in Nashville. This is my old partner, a uh, real good friend of mine, and uh, we're partners. Uh, Kenny Wallace was working after I left uh, Hampton. He was working my zone. Uh, he was ambushed one night. And uh, so what happened was it was right before uh, Christmas in 1993. Uh, I get a phone call in Nashville from my other buddy, say, listen, Kenny got shot. And uh, told me what had happened. He, Kenny and another guy, Curtis Cooper, were working gangs in, uh, in Hampton. Well, this particular gang uh, kind of got ticked off. They were being looked at and being targeted. They actually had a, a hit on the prosecutor, which was the Commonwealth attorney. They had one on Curtis Cooper, and they had one on Kenny. They were looking for Curtis that night. Curtis is a guy who grew up in Hampton. A great cop. He knew everybody. I think he was related to everybody. 
because everybody you saw, oh, that's my brother. And I guess his dad had a bunch of kids. That's my cousin, my brother, his mother. So he knew everybody. So everybody knew Curtis. So looking for him. Well, Kenny was working my old zone. And um, the, the witness that was in the street that saw everything happen said that uh, somebody stopped Kenny in the street and um, flagged him down. So Kenny stopped. Again, your hindsight's 2020. You don't let someone walk up on you. So um, he stops, rolls the window down. The guy talks to him. There's a conversation. The guy turns and walks away. Something said, Kenny starts to turn the car around. As he's turning the car around, another guy comes up and shoots about four or five times in the head. Uh, Kenny survives all the way through to uh, February. Then he passes away. So I was really one of the first guys I was close to that I lost in, um, in being a police officer. Kenny was a great guy. Always had a smile on his face. He was always there, willing to help you out. Um, real good guy. And right before, right before any of this happened, during the uh, during his funeral, the pastor was talking to Kenny. Was searching, and he said to him, he's asking about you know dying and what happens after you die. He had a lot of questions about that. And what I found interesting was is that you know, do we sometimes know that, that something's coming? Do we know? I mean, he was asking a lot of questions that you. You know, I'm sure a lot of people ask, but he was asking specific questions about dying and something happening and in this happened. So the pastor did say that you know, Kenny was a Christian. He, he believed and uh, he spoke to him about that. So, you know, I'm hoping that that did happen. I'm hoping he did have his conversion before this happened because this was unexpected. And, uh, and then we lost Kenny. Uh, and so from then, you know, again, I was still pursuing uh, the government. Was this Hampton, New York? No, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, Hampton, Virginia. And um, um, while I was in Nashville, though, I was also given the opportunity to work for the, the, the group Alabama, great guys, probably the best guys you've ever met in your life. I was able to work for them. I've met the Mandrell sisters. Um, I've, I've met Garth Brooks twice. Um, I was able to work for um, uh, Brooks and Dunn, worked for them on one of their concerts. I towed um, uh, Dwight Yoakam's truck. Uh, while he was on stage, uh, <laughs> didn't know it was his truck, but he was just parking the wrong spot. So. <laughs> Don't park there. And so, in fact, my buddies were in there, and he called him up on stage. He said, "These are the guys that towed my truck out front." So um, that was during his concert. He was he was good about it. There was no problem. Kenny Tuck used to be down downtown uh, uh, Nashville all the time, so we uh, had. Talk with Tanya Tucker all the time. So see, these are people you see growing up and you see them and you don't get to meet them. And then they're there in front of you and you get to meet them. So, and there was an old guy that was on Hee Haw that owned a bar down there. And um, he used to wear the coveralls with all the different designs on there. Well, right after I left Nashville, he was he was murdered. So I knew I knew him, met him all the time, talked to him all the time. And uh, it was funny because you hear all the stories about Hee Haw, watching it on TV. And then um, some guy just randomly went into his bar one night up killing him right when, it, right when I was transferred out. So these are the people that, that I was able to meet, you know, just being on the police department. And again, being there, I was dealing with guys that weren't in church. They knew that we were in church, that we were going again, we were involved in different churches there. And it was singing also brought us into different venues. And so it gave us opportunities to talk to people, to, to share our faith with them. I know I was working with some guys who were Christians that walked away from it. And then they, they all, you know, we all started going to church together, speaking about it, and, and just being able to work together. Because law enforcement is not a career that you go into that if you're not, if you don't have a strong belief in whatever you, you're going to get pulled into a lot of mess that's that's out there. Because you're seeing a lot of things. Um, you have a cop's humor and you have a cop's state of mind. No matter where you're working, you're gonna you're gonna have it because you're seeing so much. 
and there's so much out there that's affecting you. It does, you, you can't do anything but bring it home. So you have to have something to, to rely on. So my faith is what got me through a lot of the stuff uh, through there, especially like losing Kenny and, um, and then the other guys that you work with and, and the environments that you're put into. And again, you're, you're, you're down there working in an environment where there's strip clubs and you have to go into a strip club. And do, so you're, you're involved with all of this stuff, you know, and you're just, you're trying to keep yourself away from it and, and stay away. And you got guys that go in and hang out in a strip club. You know, Come on guys, we gotta, get out, we gotta get out of a strip club. You know, so you remember that you're, you know, what you're doing, your job is not to, to be there getting involved with what's going on. So, um, <clears throat> what happens after Nashville is um, I'm there and a buddy of mine walks up. I didn't know this guy. And um, Jeremy Perez, he walks up out of, out of nowhere. He's a police officer. And he goes, hey, you know DEA's hiring? And I'm like, I don't even know the guy. And I'm like, uh, okay. And he says, uh, he said, I just thought you ought to know. I said, okay, thanks. So he leaves. So I plot and uh, put it in and, and he was applying for the job. His dad was a, a supervisor in DEA. I didn't know that, I didn't know anything about Jeremy. I didn't know Jeremy, we didn't work in the same area. We just happened across one time. We met, we spoke, and he said, hey, by the way, DEA is hiring. So then um, put in my application, and within six months, I was hired on DEA. Normally, it takes about two, three, four years, but mine went through uh, fairly fast, and got on six months, and I knew right there, okay, now my career's gonna take off, so I'm gonna go. And I knew I wanted to work in New York. I didn't want to work in a small area, a small city. So I wanted to make sure that I was going back to New York. And so got on to uh, DEA and uh, went through the academy. I selected New York. I was given New York. I got to go back. So now I get to live the dream because now I see all the guys that I watched on TV growing up, all these cop shows, you know, running through train stations, kicking doors in. I get to do the same thing. So, um, and I did. And so uh, I was able to go back to, to, um, uh, this was Hampton, uh, this was Nashville. This was in a, uh, a movie, and then that was uh, Regina. Regina, it was a music group. I'm sorry, I didn't see those slides. I didn't know she put those in there, but they were on, on Second Avenue. And I told them, I said they couldn't take pictures unless I was in the photos. So I got in the photo, and I got in the <laughs> so, uh, so I, I got my way into that. So then I was hired on DEA, and you get a cool badge. This is my retirement stuff. You get a cool badge, you get that, and you get your all your gear, and basically, you get to run your own cases. You go out there and you find guys, you lock them up, you make them, you flip the store, you flip their information and you want, either you go to jail, you work for me. So most guys want to work for you. So that's where you get your, your intel from. You start doing that, you got your wiretaps. Back in the day when I was there in New York, the division was I think five or six floors and you can go in there day and night. I don't care what hour of the day it was, it was packed. You had NYPD, state police, DEA, FBI. We had uh, ICE in there. <coughs> everybody in our building, everybody was working cases. Everybody's working. You go there now, it is empty. So there's a lot of stuff not going on right now. What you hear in the news and what you see, it's kind of sad because there's still a lot of stuff happening out there, but they're just not working like they used to back in the day. And it's a different environment, what they want you to do, what, what, what they don't want you to do. But then getting into New York in 1997, I worked in a New York division. And then of course, then we have um, 2000, um, 2001 happens. Next slide. Oh, that's the kids. I thought, oh, oh. <laughs> keep going. Tom, these going. are so fascinating, yeah. right? This is awesome. Yeah. This is super, this is super, super cool um, intimate images here. Um, it, it's about eight o'clock, so I think yeah. I'm gonna try to okay. speed it up okay. a little. But then what happens in 9-11, I lost two football buddies in 9-11. We were both firemen. Uh, Keith was lost and Billy was lost. So then we had 9-11, which changes everything. And so from that point, um, then my, uh, Charlton's born. We have Charlton. 
and then um, we then after Charlton we transferred to San Diego. Ryan, I don't know if you know this, but Ryan's adopted, and uh, we adopt Ryan in, in San Diego. His name actually um, was a name that I liked. I, I knew a girl in school. Her last name is Ryan. Jim Ryan, the runner, is her cousin, and I always liked that spelling of Ryan. And so I said, if I have a boy, I'm going to name him Ryan uh, with that with that spelling. So long story short, on this, we get a phone call that there's a boy available. So we go, we go in, we prayed about it, and uh, we go down, and the lady says to us on the phone, well, you need to have a boy's name whenever you show up to the hospital. So I'm, I'm there, and I write down you know, the name Ryan. And so Angela finds out later on from her that they already named him. Another couple was supposed to adopt Ryan, and they backed out at the last minute. That's how we got it. So they backed out. And then what happens is, is um, she says, you guys have a name. She says, yeah, I have a name. She says, what did they name him? Well, the other couple named Ryan Ryan. And so he was R-Y-A-N, and she says, you're not going to believe this, but we have a name on a piece of paper that Todd wrote down this morning, R-Y-U-N, which is Ryan. So we brought that to the hospital. We met the mom. We showed her what was going on. So it was meant to be. It was meant that Ryan would come to our family. So we brought him home, and then um, we had him. He's got his complications now as far as uh, being type 1 diabetic, which was thrown on to us again. There's a lot of things that happen in your life, but you're going to rely on God. He knows what he's doing, and he's not going to give you any challenges that you can't handle. So we, we, um, we're dealing with all that, and then just keep going. Just go all the way through. You hit Hank Aaron. And so I get a job with, um, <clears throat> once you see Hank Aaron stop. And then, uh, uh, so I get a job after I retire. After 22 years, I retire. I get a job with, um, with uh, the Atlanta Braves and security operations. During the time with uh, security operations, I was able to meet Joe Torrey. I was able to meet the governor. And then uh, I was able to spend a lot of time with Hank Aaron because I drove Hank around. See, there's a photo of him. And I spent time with Hank Aaron and we shared stories, interesting guy. Um, so what happens is, is uh, we're talking. I asked him if I had a photo. He goes, yeah, we took a photo in the gym. We're always talking. He's always asking where I'm at whenever I go there. I pick him up and ride him around. So January 10th comes around. He, uh, his son, his grandson worked for me. He said, hey, my grandpa got, got you a baseball sign. Uh, I get the baseball, and then Hank passes away within days. So I had the last signed baseball by Hank Aaron. Um, so I'm in possession of that. So, um, but Hank was a real good guy. God's given me a lot of opportunities to do this, uh, to move around with people. Uh, I'll sum up with this at John 14, 6. Uh, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is our calling. Because people don't know that, it's our job to do that. So that's where that's where we are. I'm sorry, Mr. Paul. No, no, no. no. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I, I love how you stated real early and what you shared with us, that commitment, that duty that we have to go share our faith and how we go share that faith. That's a challenge, I think, you know, certainly for all of us. And it's certainly as you demonstrated, you had so many great opportunities and all the people that you're able to interact with to be a witness. And, and that's so incredible. Those pictures are, are so wonderful. And um, I imagine so intimate. So for you to share those with us, that's awesome. And, and maybe some of the credit, I think that's the Angela. That puts yeah. up that, you know. <laughs>